my, my main concern this morning is for those of us who are Christian, you grew up in a church, you remember the day you were baptized, you've given your life to Christ, and as you experience the Christian life, there are things that show up in your life that prompt fear. There are th- the big bully temptations. When they come knocking, you, you have to give it your spiritual lunch money. You know, this, this sin, this temptation pushes you around. And you thought you were going to enter into a Christian victorious life. And you can't just stop it. You feel like her. Like, you come to church and you feel like the sermon is, stop it. Stop this. Stop that. Do this and don't do that. And then when you go back out in the world, you're like, okay, I'm going to stop or I'm going to start. You know, the things that we want to do that we're not doing, the things that we want to stop doing that we keep doing, and then we're powerless to do it. We're unable to make it happen. And what I want to share with you this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has everything to do with that. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hand up and we'll pass one to you. Ephesians is in the New Testament, that means it's towards the back of the Bible. Okay, and you get to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you'll hit Galatians, and then you got Ephesians. Or just use the table of contents to get there quickly. But we're in Ephesians chapter 1, and Paul is writing to encourage the Christians at this place called Ephesus. That's why it's called Ephesians. It's written to believers that gathered in a place called Ephesus. And he just in his opening paragraphs explained how they're really Christian. Because if you struggle with sin and you keep messing up and you come back to church and you're like, okay, for real this time, and you go back out and you tell the pastor, you know, maybe I need to be baptized again. You didn't put me deep enough. It wasn't hot enough. Let's try cold water. You know, it's not working. How come I'm not have, gaining power against the things that I'm trying to fight against? How come I keep clicking on those pages on my internet when my wife isn't home? Why can't I control the feelings that I have for my secretary that I know I shouldn't have? Why can't I control these outbursts of anger? My dad did it, my grandfather did it, and I swore I'd not be like them, but here I am, the same person. How do I break those chains? How do I get those burdens off of my plate? How do I live a life that's victorious instead of always getting defeated with these same bullies that show up all the time? Maybe you don't feel very Christian. Paul just explained to them, no, you're Christian. If you gave your life to Christ and you believed in him by faith, he sealed you with the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee. You don't need to doubt your Christianity. Well, then what's the problem? This paragraph we're about to read, I think is one of the most powerful paragraphs in all the Bible. It goes like this, verse 15. For this reason, because you are saved, You are saved. You have the guaranteed Holy Spirit. You're in possession of it. Verse 15, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Listen. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We could do a 20-part sermon series on that paragraph. This stuff is rich. I, I, can you tell? I just feel amped right now. I'm like, this is awesome. My daughter told me recently I don't get excited about anything. We're at a, her full, first Bulls game. Or terrible seats, but it was our first Bulls, her first Bulls game. And the Bulls were doing great. It was a neck-and-neck game. And then finally, in the fourth quarter, they pulled away. And everyone's jumping and cheering. And the guy next to me knows all the players' names. And he's call, telling them what to do and yelling at the ref. And, you know, and everyone's clapping. And I'm clapping, but she keeps looking at me and looking at the crowd and looking at me. And she's like, why aren't you? And I know what to tell her. It's just a game. No eternal value. This is amazing. This has everything to do with your life today when you go home. Your week. This month coming up. Your past. We feel powerless, but that's not the truth, is it? If you're in Christ and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, verse 19 is true of you. Paul says that there is an immeasurably great power that God has. It is immeasurably great. Some of your translations say it's exceedingly great. Some of your translations say it's surpassingly great. One of your translations, I think the NIV says, it's incomparably great. Why are there all these different words? Synonyms. Not cinnamon, synonyms, right? Words that mean the same thing, but a little bit of a different aspect, a little different nuance. It's nice to have different words that point to the same thing so you get an understanding of what it means. What does it mean that it's immeasurable? What does it mean that it exceeds? What does it mean that it's surpassingly great? That means no matter what you put this power up against it, it surpasses it. No matter how far this power needs to extend, it exceeds that point of extension. No matter how difficult your sin, no matter how big that bully, when it comes knocking temptation and you feel powerless, that's fine. Your power is terrible. But God has an immeasurably great power so that every time you go, okay, I get that, but what if it's this? What if it's a character flaw that I inherited? It's like in my spiritual DNA to get angry. Every single one of the men in my life always cheated on their wives, so I guess that's just me. I can't shake it. It's like a a genetic. I'm born with it. God's power is greater. It doesn't matter what the enemy is. It doesn't matter what the burden is. It doesn't matter what the sin is or the temptation. God's power is immeasurable. It goes beyond it. It is always more than just sufficient to cover it. It's always given with extra helpings. In verse 19, I love the words, how they stack. It's immeasurable. It's great power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Now that is the key. If you want to know how good something is, you always want to know its track record, right? You want to go into a restaurant because your friend said, hey, this is a good restaurant. I'm going to check Yelp. Track record. Right? How many people have given this restaurant a good rating? You want to buy a new laptop. And the person in the store, of course, is telling you this is the greatest thing 
ever, but you're going to Google it to see what people have said about it that have bought it. Track record. Paul's saying, I don't just want you to take my word for it. I don't want you to just say, oh, Paul said it's great. I guess it works for him. Maybe I'll just jump on board. Paul's saying, this, th- there's a resume behind this power that God offers you. And instead of going back through the Old Testament, like remember the power that God had when he created things out of nothing? Remember the power God had when he rained judgment down on rebellious people? Remember the power God had when he separated the waters in Red Sea? He's like, no, I just, I'm just going to give you the one thing that trumps everything. Remember when Jesus was killed dead? And God raised him back to life. What is more powerful than that? There's no explanation except that God had the power to do it. He was dead. He was dead Friday. He was dead Saturday. He was dead. And then God brought him back to life. The power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that's available to you right now to conquer sin. It's the same power. Whatever was happening in that tomb that caused Jesus to get up, happens in the Christian that causes you to rise above the difficulties, the temptations. And so he, he, he makes it really clear. This is what happened when Christ was raised from the dead. God worked a power in him. And he didn't just barely raise him from the dead. He didn't just, you know, God, Jesus didn't walk around with a walker. Okay? He exalted him above everything. He seated him, verse 20. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Think of the the spiritual bullies in your life, the things that keep sidelining you and how powerful those seem to you in those moments when you can't resist those temptations. He's saying this Christ is over all those things, even if it's spiritual enemies. You know, Ephesians 6, he starts talking about spiritual warfare and you Maybe there's demonic activity. It's such a difficult temptation. There's demonic activity behind that temptation. It's weighty. Doesn't matter. They're all chumps because Christ has been put above them. It's, that's why he says overall power, overall dominion, above every name that is named. Not only in this age, this wasn't something that ran out, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet your problems, your issues, your temptations, under Christ's feet. And he was made head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The reason why that's supposed to make you want to jump out of your seat and cheer is because it wasn't just, oh, Christ is exalted, great for him. He's exalted, and the same power that exalts Christ, the same power that brought him out of death is the same power that is applied to you. It's the same power that is available to you. That is an amazing truth. So you might be thinking, boy, that sounds really nice. That sounds really great. You know, it's a really good bumper sticker. We can really, you know, put that on a refrigerator magnet and just remind ourselves every morning, great power, great power. What good does it do me? It doesn't sound practical. It just sounds like we're talking theology. It's stuck up here in, in the, like the mental realm. What, what does it have to do with how I live my life? It has everything to do with how you live your life. I want to show you a couple of verses. You don't even have to go anywhere. We're right in Ephesians, okay? And some of these will be familiar to you, but if you drop down to chapter 2, verse 10, 
So in my Bible, it's just the next paragraph down, the last line of the next paragraph down. Chapter 2, verse 10. He said we're saved by grace, right? It's not a result of work so that no one can boast. Verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is he talking about? He's talking about your daily walk with Christ. The feelings that come up, the temptations that come in when you're alone, when no one else is around, and your character is tested. What's available to you so that you can obey in that moment? What is available to you so you can walk the way you're supposed to walk? The same power that rose Christ from the dead. You see it again at the end of chapter 3. He's talking about this power. Look at like 316, uh, 3.18. We have strength. We have power. Verse 19, we know the love of Christ surpasses knowledge so that we'll be fulfilled in it. Okay, so this is what Christ has done for us. He strengthened us. Verse 16, it is there. Strengthened with power through his spirit, right? Why? Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. Paul's concern is not just that you get your theology right. Paul's concern is that when you leave church, you get your life right. Theology doesn't matter if it doesn't change your life. And so the aim this morning is not for you to go, oh, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and I believe that that was a very powerful act that God did. What I want you to understand is that God's, that same power, God is applying it to you. He's not hiding it. He's not hoarding it. God's not playing hard to get with it. It's not something it's really expensive and you have to save up a lot of money to get. It's not something that you have perfect church attendance for five years before you can even approach God about asking for it. If you believe, it's available to you. That's what chapter 1 verse 19 says. That this uh, immeasurable great power is for us who believe. Not for us who are skilled. Not for us who get enough degrees in counseling to fix our own problems. It's not for us who do enough or are able enough. It's for those who have faith. That's it. You apply faith to Jesus Christ and then that power is available to you. So the same way in which God told Jesus, get up. God can tell you, don't do that, or you can do that. I'm empowering you to do it. It's power for obedience. It's available to everyone. It's about belief. It's not about skill. It's not about ability. It's about faith. And it's available to us. You know, when I think of that, I think our focus often is in the wrong place. Uh, sometimes when people come to me and ask me for advice and I, I just want to give them the gospel, but they don't feel like the gospel's practical because what they want is eight steps. What they want is 12 steps. What they want is three practical tips. Every morning, do A, B, and C, and you should be good. Now, I'm not saying principles aren't good. I'm not saying guidelines aren't good. Look, if you're addicted to looking at stuff on the internet, give somebody the passcode. You know, if you're, if you're having trouble with feelings for someone you shouldn't have, Maybe, you know, never be alone with that person. Probably a good idea, okay? So there are things that we can do, yes, but we think that the power is in those things. 
I got it, God. This time I got it. I got it. I got these three practical steps that I got from the bookstore, the Christian bookstore, and I'm going to do these three practical steps. You're going to see by next Sunday, I'm going to be awesome. I'm going to be on fire, God. Watch this. No. You can't do it. Your power is nothing. You are unable. You are weak. Romans 5. So our focus shouldn't be on steps. Notice that in this passage, Paul's concern is that you go home and live the life that you're supposed to live, right? We just looked at those verses there. You live a life, you walk your life the way God wants you to walk. That's his concern. But Paul doesn't give any practical steps. He doesn't say all you got to do is A, go to church. B, read your Bible three times a day. C, memorize one of those passages you read in your Bible. And D, give a lot of money to your pastor. He, He doesn't have steps like that. Instead, he's pumping you you're full of theology. This is what God is like. This is the kind of power that God has. And this power is available to those who believe. Oh, that's really great. Where are the three steps? They're not there. In fact, when you get to Ephesians 6, it's a favorite passage for many of us, right? When he talks about the armor of God. I, I, I get disappointed sometimes when people preach that passage, the armor of God, like it's a list of things to do. First, put on your helmet. Second, after your helmet's on, don't forget to put on your breastplate of righteousness. They're not things to do. The armor of God is not a to-do list. The armor of God is what you have when you give your life to Christ. You have salvation. You have righteousness. You have truth. You have peace. None of those things are things you're supposed to do. Those things are things you have. There are no to-dos in that list except for prayer. Because after he goes down that entire armor list, Notice prayer isn't one of the weapons. The spear of prayer. He's like, I'm done, with the, <laughs> I'm done with the weapons and the armor analogy. You guys just need to pray. So how do I get to a point where I can lean on God for this? I ask him for it. I need to ask him for it because it has to come from him. It has to come from him because it can't come from me. Okay? We're like, uh, we're like expensive smartphones. You know, most of you probably have a four, five, six hundred dollar, maybe seven hundred dollar device in your pocket that you're paying monthly for. And it's got all the bells and whistles. I mean, it's got, you know, 300 megapixels. It can shoot, you know, pictures of the moon and you can drop it in water and you can play games on it and you can watch movies on it. You can get your kid to shut up for a little while by giving it to them, and it's, you got the shatterproof screen protector on that thing, okay? It is awesome. It is an awesome device, but it's worthless if it's not charged. See, our problem is we go, hey, I'm a pretty good device. I can, I, I got education. I've, look at the things I've accomplished in my life. All I got to do is try a little bit harder, and I can, I can knock out these things that are the private struggles in my life. Maybe my wife doesn't even know I struggle with these things. I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, but it's eating you up and you're defeated and you're not admitting that you can't do it. You're like a cell phone that has no battery charge. You're unable. We need to plug in. How do we plug in? By downloading more apps? You can't download apps. You got no charge. How do you charge up? You ask for it. That's what Paul did. You remember the first verses we read in Ephesians 15, 1, 15? Listen to what he says. His concern is for them, right? He says, I've heard of your faith. He knows they're Christians. Their faith is in the Lord Jesus. They love the saints. They're good people. They're not bad people. But he doesn't stop giving thanks for them and praying for them. At the end of verse 16, he keeps praying for them without ceasing. 
What does he pray? He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give them a spirit of wisdom. See, this isn't something you have to do. This is something you have to understand. He asked that God would give them a spirit of wisdom. This isn't something we're supposed to do. It's a revelation we're supposed to have. Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. This isn't something we're supposed to go home and do. This is supposed to be something that we see. Verse 18, he prays that their eyes would be opened and enlightened. Their hearts would be enlightened so that they could see it. This isn't something you go to the bookstore and go buy off a shelf. This is something that you have to know. This is that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So you know that you have that immeasurable great power available to you. This, this is like the light bulb coming on. Right? This is, this is a, like that aha moment that you're supposed to have. Where you realize, oh my goodness, all this time I've been struggling, beating my head up against the wall, trying to gain victory in this area of my life. And I never really surrendered it to God. I never just came to God and said, God, I give this to you. I ask you to do this. I ask you to make this change. You know, it's, it feels impossible to me. I, I, I just feels like uh, it's, a, it's in my DNA and I can't help it. I can't help the outbursts or I can't help what I'm doing in private. I, I'm enslaved to it. I need your power. I need you to give that to me. And so you ask for it. He'll give it to you. He's waiting for you to stop thinking you could do it yourself. He's waiting for you to get to the point where you realize, man, my power is not really that great. Because left to my own power, I'll, I'll just keep these, I'll live a double life. I'll end up living a double life. The smiling person that walks in church and shakes everybody's hand. And then the enslaved person behind closed doors that has to click on that thing or has to do that thing or whatever it is. Abuse a substance, whatever it is. We need God's power. We need to ask Him for it. You know, when we watch that video, it's, it's funny because we know that nobody would want to go back to a counselor like that. That's why I try not to do that when I'm talking with people. Oh, just stop it. See you later. But the reason why I do it is not just for decorum. It's not just to be nice. The reason I can't just tell somebody to just stop it is because I know they can't. I know I can't. I know I can't do it, guys. But it's not in my strength that God is asking me to do it. God makes the same power that he applied to Christ's resurrection. Resurrection power is available to you if you ask him for it the bully will come knocking. And suddenly you'll feel this surgence, this, this, this power. You don't have to open that door. And you're going to wonder, where did that come from? What did, I, what did I do different? You didn't do anything. You asked God for it. He gave it to you. And now you feel the empowerment. Now you feel the strength that you didn't have before because you're leaning on God's strength instead of depending on your own New Year's resolutions that fail. Only in the power of the Holy Spirit can we look at those things that keep hanging us up and truly say, stop it, and be able to stop. It's available to us, guys, because of what Jesus did on the cross and coming out of that tomb.